Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Jens Frank from the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute. And if you don't follow the SWDI as it gets abbreviated on social media, then you really should. The videos that they post of tracking dogs and scent detection dogs are just unbelievable. Uh, really massively uh, inspiring as like something to to work towards and uh yeah, massively inspired me for sure. And and I've done a lot of uh, Jens's webinars and courses and really, really enjoyed them. And they've really made me feel very motivated to kind of pursue scent training further. And I hope that it does the same for you. But before we get started, I just want to tell you about a workshop that we have coming up in October, on October the 7th, an in-person workshop here in Bristol uh, with Cat Le Chevalier uh, on an introduction to bike drawing. So essentially, if you are interested in learning how to do bike drawing, then you can come and join us on October the 7th. To find out more details about that, uh, you can go to our website, which is houndplus.com, and then click on the events tab, and it'll give you all the info. That's here in Bristol in England, and we would love to love to see you there. But uh, in the meantime, you can enjoy this fantastic podcast with Jens. Jens is like definitely one of the people that I most look up to in the dog training industry. Uh, and I'm just, yeah, I can't, re- <laughs> I can't really say any more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Jens, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I know it's probably a little bit weird to you, but... Uh, you know, I've I've followed your stuff for so long now, and I've just been uh, really fascinated with the way that you train dogs and watching the dogs work as well. I mean, you probably appreciate the beauty of watch you when whenever even if you don't aren't involved in something, when you watch a dog work, there is just something really cool about that. Yeah, you know, something really interesting. I agree. Yeah. I can watch. Yeah. Uh, I can watch clips on uh, YouTube of agility dogs or dog dancing and all these things that I have never tried but I can really be amazed and very impressed of how they have trained the dogs to do what they do I have no understanding of how they do it I'm just impressed yeah I remember when I was uh like a newbie dog trainer and uh I I had a task for university basically where you had to pick like a sport or like an activity you had to teach your dog and then you'd be assessed on it. And uh, at that time I was working with Nando Brown and over in Spain. And I said, I really like the idea idea of doing scent detection, but I have no idea where I would even start. And he basically talked me into doing it. So then I ended up watching DVDs and stuff like that and getting exposed to it. And but I remember that feeling where it felt like really alien. Like, like I, I don't even know how you would do that. Like that was kind of my feeling because I was used to training tricks and like, you know, pet obedience and stuff like that. But I'd never trained a dog to find something. No. Yes. I understand the feeling. <laughs> so for people that don't know you, could you kind of give us a short introduction of who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah. So... I work um, 
I have I basically have two affiliations. I work as an associate professor at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. And at the university, we are encouraged to start institutes if it is something that we do that can be applied by the surrounding society. So then some years ago, we started the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute, where we are more free to train and uh, do projects that may not necessarily be in relation with research at the university. That's interesting, actually. I didn't realize there was such a close tie. I knew you were very involved in the academic stuff as well. Does that, does that mean that it's not ran as a business, essentially? It is ran as a business. So, oh, okay. So that's the way universities want their employees to yeah, to try to yeah, commercialize uh, what they are doing at the university. But is that like your project then, or is that actually just an arm of the university? No, no, it is. Um, it's not really administratively. It's not linked to the university in oh, any see, other okay. way that uh, I am at both sides. Right. Okay. I see. I see. Well, as you know, I think anyone that has come across your work online, you know, they're, they're going to see the, uh, the scent detection and the tracking dogs and they're just, the level of training is like, is, is amazing. It's really, really cool to see. And I wanted to, uh, talk a little bit about the history of the way that the training has developed because, um, maybe the way that I got interested in scent detection and tracking i was kind of initially introduced to like the more old school methods so uh for example i think i'm maybe a little bit more familiar with the tracking side of things you know where i started off with the the food trails essentially where you know i'd walk and then i would put food in the track and then eventually i'd start um reducing the food on the track but then i i've realized now that actually that's a little bit out of vogue that's not really such a such a popular training technique anymore and that seems to have then shifted to uh articles and then like teaching the dog to indicate on the article and it's so essentially instead of food now people are putting down articles i, I think is that right yeah i would say that's the most uh, common way of training service dogs yeah. Why why did that shift, Jens? Like why did people like what was the advantage of doing it with articles versus food? I think there were several things. So one, maybe the most uh, the biggest one is that indicating articles is something you want almost all tracking dogs to do in the end. So then by backchaining the tracking from that, we teach the dog a behavior that we need to teach the dog sooner or later anyways so compared to using food in the track which we would later have to remove and make the dog not picking up food or food items in the track we we simply yeah, skip one module of the training so we we save a lot of time the other reason i think is due to the selection of dogs Typically, when you select a working dog, you want a dog that has a very high motivation for the ball or the toy. And by using articles in the track, you make it easier to reinforce the dog with a high-value reinforcer when it is tracking and finding the articles instead of going the 
extra step via the food, which is typically a low level reinforcer for these dogs. Yeah, and uh, the scent detection stuff, I'm a, I'm a little less familiar with the history of that. I think I, when I was introduced to scent detection, it was more like my first exposure. Well, like a lot of it was kind of like, uh, you know, you would basic, you basically start with imprinting right at the beginning, you know, where you'd like show the dog the scent and then you'd be rewarding them with it. And sometimes people would start off with like toys and then you would like hide the toy. Well, there was a few different ways of doing it. Like you'd, you'd start off with the toy maybe and you're teaching a dog, you just hide the toy. And maybe in the beginning it was like in a super obvious place and then you'd make it harder and harder and harder. And then at some point you might do the imprinting onto like whatever scent you wanted to. Um, but that doesn't seem to be... Again, that doesn't seem to be the way that people are doing it now. I think it, that is a quite common way uh, today as well. But now there's more a um, mix of methods because the, the advantage of using a dog's primary reinforcer when you teach the dog, for example, a passive indication and then back chain the detection part from the indication. The advantage of that is that you use the primary reinforcer to get the dog to sit and stare at it. So it's very easy to get the behavior and to make the dog not being distracted by other things because it's the best thing in the world to use. But for some types of dogs like explosive detection dogs on airports, that's not really a wise way to do it. And also some states in the US has legal issues with dogs that are trained to indicate, for example, Kong. And then you need think to I, go about in a different way. I think I actually, I just did a poor job of explaining it as all. Well. It's just um, like now, I guess maybe the difference is, and actually maybe it was just that I wasn't exposed to like operational stuff at that time, but there seems to be so much more of an emphasis on like the play development side of things and actually like building the motivation for the toy versus when I was exposed to it uh, in the early days of what, well, in my early days, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, that wasn't really spoken about so much. You know, it was more just, you just immediately you're going into like hiding the toy versus now it seems like there's more of an emphasis on building the value for the for the Kong toy. And also like what you said, selection, although I'm sure that's always gone on in, in the operational world um, for dogs that are very toy motivated. I think the latter is the most important part because really if you look at the definition of a primary reinforcer that is something that is innate in the dog that is the definition and if it's something we have to teach the dog then it's a secondary reinforcer that has to rely on some primary reinforcer so it's it's really not possible to build drive or motivation it has to be there then you can through some techniques enhance it a little bit but uh, you cannot make a dog that's not suitable for operational work suddenly become suitable for that you can just take oh. it a little bit this is uh you've stumbled into a really interesting topic already. <laughs> <laughs> you know um in the because my background is i've been a pet dog trainer for basically my whole career 
Um, and I know one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make with pet dogs is they'll get like a hunting breed and then they'll take them to the woods every day and allow them to just chase squirrels constantly. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is you end up with a dog that only wants to chase squirrels when you go to the woods and is just obsessed with that activity. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be an example, though, of a dog where you've you've essentially built the drive like it already existed but you've through the environment you've kind of allowed it to uh like become like a super reinforcing to the dog versus if you take that same dog and actually you just don't really expose them a huge amount to squirrels then you're still going to get you're still going to have the drive to chase but it's, it's not going to be on the same level so i would say what you do is that you allow the dog to express it so if I, like I buy young dogs and train them and then sell them to different units. And then the, the, the perfect dog for me in such a situation is a one year, one and a half year old Malinois or Labrador that has been in a pet dog home where they bought it to be a, maybe a sports dog or a pet dog. And if they then have tried to make the dog calm, they may not have, they may have re refrained from giving the dog a ball or playing with a tug or biting things. So they want to keep the dog calm. But these are primary reinforcers for the dog if it's suited uh, well bred. And they then become very frustrated because the dog is not uh, working for them and the reinforcement they present like petting and trying to verbally praise it or giving it food and then they get a lot of other problems so then they want to sell the dog and i come there to buy it and at first since the dog has not been playing with balls or bite tugs or sleeves it's very hesitant and thinks that is this really fun but after just a few days the dog is crazy for balls and bite dogs and then it may be easy for me to think that ah look what i created i have been building all this drive but actually i have just allowed the dog to express the drive for these primary reinforcers that was there all the time so it's really not possible to build it by definition it has to be innate otherwise it isn't a primary reinforcer but i can allow the dog to express it and then make use of it in the training or as you say with the squirrel example if we allow the dog to express that it may make other training more difficult right right that's a really interesting way of putting it and um you know so let's say that you do take that year old dog year and a half um and it isn't showing a lot of interest in the toy what is it that you do over those few days to help the dog kind of express that drive if i don't see a quite rapid progression i will not buy the dog because chances are it has a low uh, drive for these reinforcers as well um, most Malinois or most working line Labradors are not suitable to become working dogs. But I would expose it. I would try to uh, do retrieval exercises 
make the dog excited about the border tug and then show it and gradually further and further and gradually into higher grass or a bit messy environments where the dog had to search for the tug or board for one second, five seconds, 10 seconds, one minute to see that it actually has the motivation to search for it. So with the, you said the most like working line Labradors or uh, Malinois aren't suitable. That's, that's kind of a surprise because, you know, you'd think that if people are deliberately breeding for working ability, the dog should be like, you should be getting like dogs that are capable, you know? Yeah, you have a, <laughs> you have a higher likelihood to find a suitable dog within those working line breeders, but uh, most of them are still not suitable. What's the what's the average like? If you had to just give a like an average percentage of dogs that that uh, that are suitable from the working lines, so it depends. So, for example, if I take on a dog say i buy a one and a half year old i may buy it in order to become a dual purpose dog for a special forces and if the dog is not suitable for that so after some weeks of testing i see that mm, no this will not work then the dog can i can still then train it and sell it as a regular police patrol dog and if it's not suitable for that, I can still train it to become a detection dog. So for a person like me or a business like mine, we have several outlets. So then it may seem like the success rate is higher while it isn't really. We just changed the objective for that's the dog. Re- that's a really good point. That's a, that's a really good point. So, but that's okay. So maybe a better question then is what percentage of those dogs are not suitable for a working role at all? So that also depends on which working role. <laughs> so for a, yeah, let's say a special forces dual purpose dog, that's a very small percentage, probably far less than 5%, uh, just as a course number of the working line Malinois that are born are suitable for that. And maybe as a regular police patrol dog, somewhere 10 to 20%. That's lower than I thought it would be, to be honest. Uh, but I mean, these are just numbers that I pull yeah, straight just out ballpark. of the... Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. And th- but then you said below the police dog, you have another tier, which is like, do you say like private detection dog? Is that what you said? It can be, it doesn't have to be a private detection dog. I mean, many authorities have single purpose detection dogs as well, and they don't have yeah. to bite and uh, track. So it's make it makes it a little bit more accessible for more dogs. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um, I wonder, do you find that like the standards are similar across organizations as well? Or, um, you know, like, <laughs> like it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I wonder if all of the dogs are, are that are in working roles are actually up to your standards, Jens. Because I've seen your dogs, and they seem amazing, you know. Or if uh, if actually there's a lot of dogs in working roles that maybe you wouldn't have passed on, but are actually uh, like doing a job, if that makes sense. 
So I, I think the standards are very different across the globe. There are units who have amazing, almost unbelievable dogs doing extreme things. And then there are units that are not as amazing. So it's it has the whole Not that anyone scale. should aspire to that. <laughs> yeah. Not that anyone should aspire to that, obviously. But uh so when you're when you're choosing uh dogs, do you um you know, what are you looking for? Like do you tend to go to breeders or like you said, are you tending to get older dogs? Uh if I can choose, I prefer a dog that is between one and one and a half years old. Because And you're mostly you, so that's mostly just like rehoming situations, dogs that aren't coping in a home? No. Uh, so that's the cheapest uh, dogs. <laughs> but uh, most of the time when you get an order for a dog, you also have a time limit for when it should be um, deployed. And then I typically go to the Netherlands and there are cane TV clubs and uh, vendors there that sell that kind of dogs, large scale. So there you can go and test as many dogs as you wish. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So if, but if you do have to go to a breeder, can you be assured that, you know, how confident can you be that you're going to get a dog of the quality that you want when you have a litter of puppies? Is it like you said with the percentages, you know, where it's like, oh, only maybe only like one of this litter is actually going to be suitable? Or um, is it actually, well, actually the parents are really good. So I, I think that the majority of this litter is probably going to be capable of work. No. So, I mean, puppy selection is uh, basically a lottery. So uh, there, I mean, if I buy a puppy, which I did the other week, it's more because it's fun to have a puppy. And then if it turns out well, well, that's a win. But um, I think the success rate if you buy puppies is uh, extremely low. You should not right. uh, hope for it to be a working dog. Maybe it turns wow. out good, but uh, most of the times it will not. Wow, that's so interesting. That's That's really interesting. And that's the case even if you're going... You know, even if you've done your due diligence and you've kind of, because I guess you're looking at lines, right? Like you're looking at the genetics of the dog and, you know, dogs with, you know, you're not going to go to some, a, a breeder that, you know, doesn't have a reputation for producing great dogs. So even, even if someone is putting together, together dogs that are of high quality, you still, still it's going to be a low percentage. Yes. Uh, but depending on what the dog should be used for, but I think everyone uh, doing the same thing as I am doing has a network of their favorite lines. So breeders that produce dogs that they really enjoy working with. And I have that as well. I mean, you get an, a sense for the type of dog that you prefer working with. And then you try to find dogs from those lines but uh, buying puppies is just a gambling it's fun but uh, not very productive <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great way of putting it and it is interesting because you know so many people put so much into like you know going to see a, a litter of puppies and then doing all kinds of tests and like trying to figure out which is going to be the best puppy mm -hmm. and actually so many people 
of like really experienced people say exactly what you say actually do you know what it's it's all a little bit silly like you just it's it is it's a lottery so interesting yeah so far i have not seen any evidence so scientific evidence showing any predictability when it comes to any puppy test and that's i think there are probably tests you can do that have a certain degree of predictability but very few governments or units are prepared to take on the labor and cost to actually do a test because then you would have to select the dogs that you consider not suitable and put them through the same training system for maybe two years and that costs a lot and if you don't do that then there is really no way to determine the, how effective the test is have you ever done any breeding yourself no i have not if someone wanted to breed dogs that were of working quality is, is there anything that they can do especially is it, is it just a case of just you know putting the best dogs you can find together and kind of hoping that it works <laughs> out <laughs> yeah i would say that's the that's probably the only way you can do it really you sh i think you need to find two best dogs i think it's kind of very high stakes gambling if you have a high arousal dog and then breed it with a low arousal dog because you want an intermediate arousal dog biology tends not to work that way when you're trying to choose dogs for scent detection are you looking for dogs that maybe the parents have shown some ability in scent detection before like maybe one of the parents is you know a narcotics dog or an explosive detection dog or actually you just go do you know what actually i just i just want a dog that has that working ability i don't care if it's from like igp lines or mondio lines i just want a dog that actually has a lot of drive yes so i i do a test of the dog and then it doesn't matter if it looks like a badger or uh, is a mixed breed or whatever breed it is, uh, if it has the motivation for the primary reinforcers, preferably as many as possible, and uh, if it has no fears, then it's a good candidate. And in my, uh, I prefer dogs with a very high motivation and low levels of arousal. I find those most nice to work with but you, you do you think that it's like uh do you think that the ability to be successful in scent detection roles is a heritable thing or is it actually like you know you actually it doesn't matter if the dog's from sports lines or work or actually a working role um do you, do you see what i'm saying like does, is there actually some heritability there i think the by far most important factor is the motivation all dogs have nose and scent capacity enough for the roles we want them to do. It's just that some dogs are not motivated enough to do the hard work of deep, deep and high frequency of sniffing for a long time. So I think it's you know, basically the motivation. Yeah, that's interesting because you'd think that with any of the sports any of the bite work sport well actually to be fair almost any of the sports like you select you want to select dogs that are high motivation for toys anyway so so you'd think that it, uh it, it wouldn't really matter too much then yeah but it's so 
I mean, a primary reinforcer for a dog can be so many things. It can be retrieving a toy or chasing after it, but it can also be uh, tugging uh, with it or just possessing it. And the more of these things the dog really appreciates, the easier it will be to train the dog for multiple skills. So if you have a dog that is just motivated by biting the sleeve or the decoy, then it will be, it, it can probably perform okay on the sports field, but it will be very hard to teach the dog other things because you cannot bring a decoy everywhere and reward the dog with a decoy because <laughs> then the dog has to be in a high state of arousal all the time. So yeah, typically IGP dogs, I think bred dogs that are bred for that purpose in general, I find uh, have less success in working roles because the arousal is high. They do the behaviors snappy for a short amount of time and that's not what you need for a working dog and you need the kmpv lines the kmpv or just uh, uh, working roles so police or military breeding lines where it is it different is is it um is it different like i kind of i guess you kind of covered this a little bit but like uh, would your selection be much different for like scent detection versus tracking versus search and rescue are you looking for a different kind of dog no that would be exactly the same right um and and the other thing is then if you're just selecting for like motivation like why use the traditional breeds like surely you can get there's like you know if we only care about motivation like you know you see these border collies that are playing tug agility that seem to love it you know you have terriers that can be super motivated for tug so if it's just about motivation like, why do we need a Labrador or a Mali or any of the other traditional breeds? Well, we don't. But it's just that there we have the highest likelihood of finding these individuals. For sure, there are some Border Collies that have the motivation and they are not afraid of high sounds or people or uh, chase things that uh, pass them quickly. And then those are also suitable for working roles. But it's, I will waste less time if I go to a Malinois breeder or a KMPV club and try to find such a dog compared to if I go to a Border Collie competition. Yeah, though I understand I'm just uh, pushing the logic a little bit. But like, you know, the other thing that that I know sometimes people do, and I guess it's more of a, uh, like, kind of like a social impact thing, just trying to do some good in the world. It's like sometimes people actually, you know, they'll go through rescue centers and stuff like that and try to find dogs that are suitable. Is that something that you you think is a good idea? Is that something you've done yourself? Or Well, of course, it's a good idea. I just understand that most units don't have the time to do that because the success rate will be even lower in in those kinds of dogs but it's a really good thing to do i think for sure you know um one thing i've read about i don't know if this i'm really curious about your your thoughts about this is i think most people have heard of early neurological stimulation you know the idea that produce giving puppies mild stress when they're young creates a more resilient dog but there is also a school of thought for what they call early scent introduction 
which is where you take puppies and you introduce them to a variety of different scents. And some people claim that this actually makes for an adult dog that is more suitable for these kind of roles. Have you ever had, have you got any thoughts about that? Yes, I think, um, I think it doesn't work that way uh, at all. And the reason for why I think it doesn't work that way is because let's say we teach a dog to search for a certain type of explosives in Great Britain, for example, and imprint the dog on that explosive. If you then send that dog to Afghanistan or Mali and expect it to indicate on those explosives there, you will not be pleasantly surprised because the explosives there, although they have the same, we call them the same name, it may be RDX to us, they have been manufactured in different uh, what you call industries there with other storage and other uh, climatic conditions and so on. So the scent picture from the RDX in Afghanistan is totally different to the scent picture of RDX in the UK or here in Sweden. And I don't think anyone really thinks that we can teach the dog this smallest common denominator in a uh, target odor and then expect the dog to find that everywhere. It doesn't seem to work that way. It seems more like we have to teach the dog different scent pictures. So basically, although to us it's called RDX and we think we have taught the dog one substance to the dog, that's probably 50 or 100 different not substances, but scent pictures. So I think it's uh, it's not possible to achieve that early in the dog's life. So the imprinting is not something you do once, but something you do continuously throughout the dog's whole life. It will need, the dog handlers need new batches of narcotics or explosives or whatever you're searching for, for the I dogs guess. to be up to date. What I'm talking about is not uh, like I'm not talking about imprinting like young puppies with this explosive scent, for example. The idea uh, of early scent introduction is that you just expose very young puppies to um, a series of just completely novel scents of various kinds. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Jens, you know, and it's just like, I guess it's just trying to encourage the puppy to use their nose. So a lot of them will be like uh, strong scents. I can't even actually remember any of them off the top of my head, but they're just inter like just interesting scents that you're trying to get the little puppies to pay attention to. You're not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I know too little about that. From what I have read, when it comes to the early neurological stimulation, it has not really yielded any significant effects later on in the dog's the, life. The the early neurological stimulation hasn't done not, anything not from what i have seen in the really uh, when it comes to what comes from the npa in bosnia maybe there are other uh, results from other places oh wow i'd love to see that because that's something that i feel like has just entered the like uh i don't know what like that's just in the zeitgeist now like that's uh something that is almost taken for fact 
Like, mm. uh, maybe I need to look uh, into those reports no, you're again. Pro- you could. But uh, <laughs> you could be right. When I saw it the last time, but that was uh, that was several years ago. Uh, then that was how I understood their conclusion. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that in the dog world that we kind of just uh, take to be. Um, fact that actually when you dig deeper there's not really a lot of like evidence for it like this has always been the thing with like calming signals um there's a few other things like that i'm trying to think of them now there's a few things like that where everyone kind of says it and repeats it but actually there's not really a lot of evidence for it. oh the other one i heard recently was development periods so i don't know i'm curious if you have any thoughts on that but um I I heard someone the other day questioning the kind of scientific validity of actually um, development periods, like fear periods and stuff like that, and actually how kind of based in science they are versus just this is people's experience. So I have not been doing any reviewing when it comes to that. My impression was that this is just based on people's experiences because it's it's very hard to do science on and so generally i mean in the dog world there may be one or two papers investigating a topic and then everybody switches focus to something else and in no other type of science would that be accepted as uh, evidence if you have one or two papers or studies showing in one direction I mean, no one would accept medical treatment based on that. Then you would like a number, a large number of studies, because you know there will be the outliers telling you that, no, this doesn't work, or this even has detrimental effects. So in the dog world, we, we have, I think, basically not scientific evidence for anything else than possibly the effect of variable reinforcement schedules but apart from that nothing is really scientifically proven yes um let me uh i i want to given what you just said you you have quite a negative view of scent id though don't you and isn't there there's not really a lot of studies on that right no, there's not a lot of studies, but <laughs> I, I have tested um, that. And I think we have been able to make it work. And I've been, I have seen others making it work in laboratory conditions. I have so far not been able myself to do it under field conditions. Uh, and I haven't seen anyone else being able to do it either. Oh, that's really interesting because there's a lot of people that are really convinced that that does work. Like, I should explain for people that don't know what scent idea is. It's like where you present the dog with a scent and then it's usually in like a tracking context as mm. where I've seen it. And then the dog is should understand to follow that scent and ignore ignore the other scents. Um, and the people that I've spoken to that are into that kind of say like that this is an example where the science and reality don't meet and actually... Um, in practice, the scent ID does work. This is I'm just repeating what they would say, and um, but the the science doesn't seem to reflect that. But the, but again, there's not a huge amount of papers. I don't think no on that topic. No, there are not. So that's yeah, interesting to hear your experiences with that, though. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, it would be interesting to. Uh, I have actually tried to get some groups uh, from the main trailing community to do a test because if we can make this uh, scent ID work, it would be really helpful in police or search and rescue contexts. So it would be very interesting to just see if there today are dogs that can do this uh, better than you would expect from random. So one way of testing it is to just set six tracks, have so have six persons setting tracks and maybe have 20 or 50 meters in between the tracks. And then you let the dog get the scent article from say number two in the line of tracks. And then the dog has to pass person number one's track and pick up person number two's track, follow that to the end and maybe get reinforced. And then you go back to the start and then you give the dog a scent article for from person number five and then the dog has to pass number one and number two whose scent it was just reinforced for following but i mean if if the dog is really able to match this scent to the scent article then that's not an issue but as i said i have not been able to pull this off myself but i would really like to find dog teams where we could make an experiment like this and show yeah. if it works no, that would be really fun, and I tr definitely trust your opinion on it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, jumping back a little. Oh, actually, let's talk a little bit var about variable reinforcement before I do, because you mentioned the variable reinforcement thing, and that's that's an interesting one as well, because um, there doesn't really seem to be much consensus around that either. For example, I can't. There's an old Bob Bailey quote, and I wish I could remember it. I can't remember what he says. <laughs> 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 but it's just i remember him saying something about uh consistent uh well the words going on my head it's consistent reinforcement i can't remember the Con word for it now continuous reinforcement continuous that's the one that's the one um because i remember when i was starting my pet dog training journey again i tried to do variable reinforcement with recall and i remember as well um I won't throw them under the bus. But someone said to me, you can get faster recalls by rewarding the faster recalls and therefore the dog will come back quicker, which in theory sounds like it would make sense. Mm -hmm. But but it didn't it never worked for me. I just felt like when I started doing variable, the dog would just be like would seem even less motivated to come back for the recall. Um and also I'm just not convinced that the dog knows whether they've done it faster or slower, like whether they actually have an understanding. Because in order for that to actually work, the dog needs to know, okay, I was faster that time. Like I, I think about it with you know, if you if you timed me running with a stopwatch, I don't know if I was faster or quicker. You know, like I I have to look at the watch. Like I, I have an idea about my own perception of how quickly I was running, but yeah. I couldn't say certainly. Um it's interesting with the variable reinforcement because kind of the the opposite side of the coin on that is a lot of people will say if you really love it and this is the this is the kind of position i ended up with with the recall like for me the recall was too important to mess around with you know i need the dog to come back so i just ended up keeping it on a uh, consistent reinforcement schedule i just rewarded it all the time hmm. it didn't make a big difference to me because i don't care if i have to give the dog a treat or a toy or whatever every time because i'm you know i'm just walking over the park or whatever but with the detection stuff, it's kind of different because it's a little bit... The 
it's tricky sometimes to reinforce the dog all the time, right? There are situations where you can't, or maybe you don't know, like some people, sometimes you're not going to know whether they've actually found something yes. when they indicate. Yes. So could you tell us a bit more about variable reinforcement with the scent detection stuff and why you favor it versus just rewarding all the time and trying to keep the motivation really high? Well, it is mainly because of what you just said. So in the in the basic, the very funda- foundations training, it's possible to have the dog on a continuous reinforcement schedule. But if you reward the dog every time, it's searching and indicating. At some point, some months into the training, you will need to start doing blind searches. And then what we call half-blind search is if I'm searching and then I have a colleague standing behind me, so if the dog indicates, I can look at my colleague and if my colleague then makes thumbs up, I know it's correct, and then I can reinforce the dog. So you can do that kind of training, but at some point you need to go to ordinary blind searches where you have no ID because that is what the reality will look like when the dogs are working every day or when you're doing more scenario-based training. And then what we see is that if the dog is used to being reinforced every time in training, when it then comes in an operational setting and makes a find, and then the dog handler is either not allowed to reward because of the protocol in their authority, or they are not able or want to reward because they have no idea what the dog has indicated on. And you may create a lot of problems by reinforcing the dog. So then the dog will be called off. And what we see then is that the dogs think seem to interpret this as a negative punishment. And you see a dip in the dog's motivation in operational settings while the dogs are still happy and motivated when we do the training. And that's not the way we want it to be. If it has to be a difference, we would like it the other way around, that the explosive detection dogs are very motivated when searching for explosives at the airports, but not as real motivated in training. So I would say that's the main reason for why operational dog teams need to have their dogs on a variable reinforcement schedule, because the solution is not to start reinforcing the dog in operational settings just because it's not possible. You're not allowed to, even if you would like to. And most dog handlers don't want to since they have no control over what they are reinforcing. So then the solution is to put the dog on a variable reinforcement schedule also in training. What kind of percentage do you like for that? So uh, 50%. And I wouldn't say it's scientific evidence, but at least there are some studies suggesting that that is the optimal variable reinforcement proportion then you get the highest effect on dopamine how did you which is another side effect right how did you develop your ideas on on scent detection because i don't know if you were like the first to kind of break that mold yens of doing things differently with the tracking and the scent work like as i started this conversation um, or if maybe there was someone before you that you learned from, how did you kind of come? How did you how did you form your ideas about scent detection and tracking? 
that's hard to say. Uh, I I'm pretty sure I haven't uh, come up with anything myself. So it's, but I haven't gone to a particular school either. So I think it's more a mix of impressions from a lot of places. So I cannot, I wish I could um, attribute it to a person or a school, uh, but I cannot. I think, well, my impression is that, uh, well, most, I, I do what most people training working dogs do. I think we're we have all been following about the same development. Yeah, maybe there wasn't one person that helped you develop your ideas about detection in general, but who who would you say have been your biggest influences in the way you train generally, just learning about training and So that's also difficult to say because what we I mean the principles that we use that's just operant conditioning uh, the yeah that model is extremely influential and useful for us as dog trainers and then we just use small techniques or tricks to get the dogs into situations where we have the possibility to reinforce what we want to see more of or punish what we want to see less of and i mean so the, the paradigm is just the operant conditioning uh, model. And then it's just a series of small tips and tricks that uh, yeah, I think we all use pretty much the same tips and tricks. Yeah, but there's, I, it's, I don't know, but it's kind of, I've heard people say that before, but like, you know, I, pretty much all dog trainers know about operant conditioning, classical conditioning, that kind of stuff. But the way that we actually apply the principles can vary so dramatically. And sometimes, for me at least, you know, I was talking to um, Jay Jack the other day about a lot. I did a podcast with Jay Jack and he uh, he comes from maybe a completely different background to me. And even though we can talk the same common language of operant conditioning, classical conditioning, all that kind of stuff, some of the ideas for how he applies that for me was like light bulb moment. Like, I can't believe I've never thought of that. Like, you know, that's mm -hmm. that makes total sense. Um, so I think there's a lot sometimes in like the application of the principles. But there, there is a lot to it. So I was talking this morning with some people about uh, tracking and so in the very start of the tracking training, the way we do it, we, as we spoke of before, we backchain tracking from articles. But then in the beginning of the training, it's important that the scent on the ground from the track overshadows the scent from the article. Otherwise, you're just reinforcing the dog for doing an area search for articles. So then you need to take off your shoes, for example, and use very small scent articles. And those things I find are very helpful. So being aware of the concept of overshadowing and being able to actually evaluate the effects of your own training to determine if you have something that is actually overshadowing what you are trying to reinforce the dog for doing. So in that way, 
I agree. It makes a big difference how we do these small tips and tricks. It's just that there is no general school or paradigm when it comes to these tips and tricks other than avoid overshadowing <laughs> yeah what what um what do you think of like the water spray method for doing exactly what you just described you know where you're trying to make sure your scent is strong because i think that's the same school of thought but maybe a different way of doing it yeah i use that as well especially in the winter time uh, here <laughs> it's not nice walking barefoot so uh, yeah. i think it works <laughs> it works very well to make the track salient and get the dog rewarded for the behavior we we want which is following this scented area and then we can gradually remove the scented water yeah that's interesting i didn't realize that you did that that's really interesting you know uh, one one thing that struck me jens when i first started doing your webinars was how systematic you were and i don't know if this is just your personality or if this is just a is if this is like a really deliberate thing you do but Oftentimes, if I've attended, you know, uh, events and stuff like that, sometimes people are very, they're much more, um, and I, I don't mean this in a mean way, but it's like much more wishy-washy, you know, it's just kind of going from one topic to the next. And it's not necessarily focused too much on the practical application versus with your webinars. I really found that it, it felt very step by step. And I, I actually really appreciated that because sometimes I feel like, uh, I get a little frustrated sometimes when, and maybe this is just my personality, <laughs> when I'm kind of, I finish a talk and I feel like I'm left to kind of put the dots together myself versus actually, I, I really want to know, like, under what are you, what are you actually doing? You know, um, mm -hmm. so is that a deliberate thing or is that just your, just your, your personality? No, it's a very deliberate thing. Uh, probably because it's closer to my, personality or as well but also because of the the dog handlers that i train many of them <clears throat> are extremely motivated uh, but they don't really have a big dog background so it's the dog is uh, their tool in their work so then they I think they benefit from having a very step-by-step -step procedure. So I try to explain, give an overview of why we do it in this procedure, but then I try to be res take the responsibility of breaking it down in small enough pieces and place the pieces in an order that will make sense for the dog. Maybe not for the dog handler, but it will make it easier for the dog to understand what it's being reinforced for. And I see that as my responsibility. And then the dog handler's responsibility is to be dutiful and have discipline and follow these steps and don't rush on to the next step until they have completed one. And it seems to work good with their personality as well. It's great for, you know... Uh by necessity i've had to learn a lot of business stuff because we run businesses we need to make a living yes. and oftentimes that's a big business thing as well you know people always try and systematize things um because it's just important that things are replicatable right there's no good you being able to do something but no one else can do it 
or you get trapped in a situation where you have to do everything. Yes, yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Earlier in this interview, I felt you you kind of, um, maybe we spoke a little bit then about like myths. Are there any like common dog myths or things that people take for granted that annoy you or maybe you just really, maybe you could kind of, are there any myths that stand out that you can... (laughs) Well, not. I don't know if there are myths, but uh, there, they are. I don't know if they qualify as myths, but there are things that uh, disturb me for sure. <laughs> you make it sound like a horror movie. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's not that. It's just disturbing. Okay. Well, you have to share it. Go give what's what's on your mind. <laughs> well, one thing is uh, what we were talking about before. Uh, selection versus building drive i find that that drives a lot of dog handlers to uh, uh what you say to almost depression or at least to have a very bad perception of themselves because if if it's all about building drive and you have a dog that is not crazy for the ball and is not able to search for the ball for 20 minutes in a row without finding it, then if you believe that it's up to you to build this drive, then it's your fault that this dog is not motivated to do this. And I see a lot of dog handlers that see dogs doing fantastic things on the YouTube and they think that the only thing standing between their dog and this dog on YouTube is them as trainers. And my experience is that that is usually not the, the case. Of course, you need some skills, but if the dog is not well selected for the task, you cannot do magic and get it to be crazy for the reinforcers you allow it with one exception and that is food because uh, and that may be uh, closer to myth that there are dogs who do not uh, like to get food as a reinforcer and i would say there are very few of these dogs so although we select the dogs that are crazy for the ball and of course if the dog had breakfast it may not be motivated to take my treats in the afternoon but after a week of no food the dog is more likely to accept the sausage as a reinforcer so by just not giving the dog food we can actually increase the drive or the motivation Mm -hmm. for food and by not playing as much with the dog we can probably increase the dog's motivation for play or by not letting it have access freely to balls and other things but to a much smaller extent compared to food but mm, that's int- yeah this with the dog handlers and making them blame themselves for this uh, i find really bad really glad you said that actually it's kind of interesting i never really think about it in that context but in a pet dog training world i'm always telling people that because we have a lot of people that maybe they have you know they've got a rescue dog or they've got a dog from a really bad situation that's like naturally has very low resilience and is really easily stressed and obviously you know our job is trying to help that person improve the welfare of the dog the dog's training 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a ceiling for like for a lot of dogs and yes. well, for every dog, essentially. Um, and oftentimes I'm telling people that, you know, because uh, because there is like a, a cultural myth. I, I think it extends beyond uh, working dogs where people do feel like every behavior of their dog is their fault. Essentially, you know, if the dog's doing, uh, if the dog's a bit nervous, if the dog is super energetic, if whatever, you know, people take it very personally. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that. Yeah, maybe it also relates to a, a myth that parents tell their children that you can be anything you want, which is, of course, not even close to being true. Uh, and then it, we make people believe that. Yeah, any dog can be anything you want it to be, which is just as far from the truth. There's a, there's a whole bunch of kids crying now, Jens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're right. You're right, though. You know, I'm never going to be a basketball player. You know, like you, you need, you, you need, like there are some genetics involved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they are not just physical; they are mental. Uh, or psychological as well. I will probably yeah. never be an accountant. Uh, I yeah, I think it will be hard to motivate me for that. My mother is an accountant and she, oh, really? she really loves the job. Uh, there is nothing she would trade it for, but yeah, it's just different. <laughs> How interesting. That's, that's hilarious. You mentioned the food thing. Um, what what are your thoughts on using food for detection and tracking? Because I feel like we're always talking about using toys. Is there a reason that we have a preference for toys versus food? Can you have a dog that just works for food? Is that a problem? Uh, I think it will be difficult to have an operational dog working just for food, simply because it's, it's difficult to get the motivation high enough uh, to, to be reliable. But it's optimal if we have a dog that is both motivate, highly motivated to work for food and for re, uh, retrieving and tugging and chasing things. The more, the more primary reinforcers we have, uh, the easier the training will be. And typically what I find important with working dogs is to gradually increase the arousal levels because... Uh, with food, you typically get a lower arousal level because it's a lower value reinforcer. So typically we want to use that in the beginning of training a behavior. But then we need to bring the dog to a very high arousal level because all working dogs, when they work, their arousal levels will be high. So if we do all the training in a low state of arousal and then expect the dog to function just as well in a high state of arousal, uh, I have never seen anyone doing that uh, in a good way. So we need to we need the food in the beginning of any new behavior, and that's something we use throughout a detection or tracking dogs' whole life. When we just need to start with the lower arousal level, and then we bring the arousal up, and then typically we start also using a higher value reinforcer like a toy. It is interesting because I think for a lot of people, it can be quite difficult to um, measure drive versus arousal. Like those two mm. things are quite easily confused. For sure. Um, 
do you have any tips for like telling them apart or like how can how do you know the dog is actually driven for the activity versus the dog is just aroused and you know acting like an idiot <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i i find that very difficult uh, i have not been able myself to set any specific or measurable standards for that and i haven't been able to find any either so i'm i'm really sorry to have to say that uh, the way i do it i i just need to observe the dog and then there is a large degree of subjectivity so motivation we can measure very squared for example with an impossible task having the dog searching for a ball the dog thinks maybe there but we have removed then we can just measure how long will the dog will be able to search for this ball so that would be a very good measurement of motivation but for the arousal uh, that's uh, a lot more uh, it's so difficult because arousal can take many forms Sometimes it is through vocalization. Sometimes it's the dog spinning or uh, panting or going faster or moving quicker. And so, how we interpret what we interpret as arousal, I think, is also task dependent. So, for most working dogs, they are not allowed to make sounds or vocalizations. So, that would then be a big issue while if it's panting and that's probably not as big as a problem but for a single purpose detection dog it may be a problem if it's panting but less of a problem if it starts to vocalize i don't know um that's good no that's a that's a good answer i think a lot of people are afraid to say when they don't know something it's always refreshing when people when people do with that motivation test how long are you looking for the dog to search for it to give you an idea as to how capable the dog is for work and also can they is is this a situation where you want them to be searching for this length of time like straight out of the box so to speak or can you spend some time building the motivation for the toy and then run the test uh, you can spend as much time you want to play with the dog to make it expect to find a toy there and expect you to play with it afterwards. So it doesn't have to be a genetic uh, trait that you want a clear view of by taking an untrained dog. If it has some degree of training in it, no problem. As long as the dog is motivated enough to search for the toy for at least five minutes, that's the break-off point that uh, many units use. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite a long period of time, really, five minutes. You know, yeah. when you think about... But if you compare it not to... Not for you, maybe. <laughs> not for the tasks that the dogs are supposed to do afterwards, because then they may be required to search for 20 minutes before they have a short break. And, I mean, when the dog is searching for the explosives, it's just searching for something that will give it the primary reinforcer. Explosives mm -hmm. or narcotics has no value. So... What we're yeah, measuring it hi does highlight, though, what you're saying about you know only a small percentage of dogs being capable of the work because 
you know, uh, obviously I'm a pet dog trainer, so I see a lot of pet dogs, but we do get a lot of dogs from working lines that people have got as pets. And, you know, I don't think many dogs would search for five minutes without having done a lot of training. You know, I think most dogs would search for, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds and then kind of give up and, okay, you know, they they probably come back to the handler. Like, what, what are we doing? Like this, you know, like I feel like a lot of dogs wouldn't be up for that. No, a lot of dogs are not up for that. But it is not uh, a lot of training needed. If the dog is born with a desire or even a need to get something to hold in its mouth or to retrieve something, then uh, as we typically do this test, I will ask the dog owner to hold the dog. I ask for the dog's favorite toy. I show the dog I have it. And then I walk over to some bushes or a part of a room. And I place the toy so that I think the dog will find it within just a few seconds. And then I go away and the dog owner releases the dog. And the dog goes there, finds the ball. And then the dog owner plays a lot with the dog. If it appreciates retrieving, then they throw the ball repeatedly. If it appreciates tugging, then they tug. And then I ask for the toy again. I go to the same corner or through the same bushes, place the toy a little bit harder, and I hope it will take at least 20 seconds before the dog finds it. Then they release the dog, play with the dog, and then the third time I go there and I don't put out the toy, but I pretend like I do it. And if the dog is crazy for this, then it will for sure, search for five minutes without any other training than these two sessions. Oh, okay. Well, this is what, that was going to be my next question, actually, because you said it doesn't take much training. I wondered if maybe if you were trying to train the dog for this kind of search task, you know, if you do gradually, like you said, up to 20 seconds, but and I know it's hard because you're just hiding it. So yeah. it depends how quickly the dog finds it. But if you would then start kind of gradually over more repetitions building up to five minutes or like you said is it more of a test and if they don't do it well you know that's that's that like they're just not am i not suitable my experience is that with the dogs that don't have that motivation initially it will be hard to get them to reliably do it and i have i have tested with some because i am unfortunately not perfect so i make uh, the wrong selection of dogs. And then a dog that I initially thought would be good turns out not to be good. And then, of course, I, I do a serious attempt to uh, yeah to make it as good as I can. But if they do, do not have that innate motivation for this as a primary reinforcer, uh, then it usually doesn't show later either. Does that test translate to tracking as well? For sure. Yeah. Like you said earlier, you don't really like IGP lines, but I was curious about IGP lines and tracking because you would think that if you're breeding IGP lines, you're going to want dogs that track, even if you're not focused at all on scent detection. I cannot say I don't like IGP lines. It's just that we're less likely to find dogs suitable for police or military work in those lines compared to other lines. But with that being said, the the way that the tracking is done in the IGP sports is 
that's something completely different compared to the tracks that are done by police or military. So it's it's two completely different activities. So if the dog is good on one, it's not necessarily good on the other. Rather, maybe the opposite. It's really interesting because, like, you know, the whole point of IGP is to prepare, or historically, is to prepare and be a selection sport for police and military dogs and it's it sounds like from what you're saying it's not uh it's not the the greatest test of that and, and maybe actually kmpv is a lot superior same with mondio right like isn't mondio supposed to that's the same right it's supposed to be a selection and the ring sports these are all sports that kind of originated to be a selection for for police and military dogs i don't know if that is their main purpose i think we we do sports because it's fun. We like it, but we can also use it for that purpose. I'm thinking of maybe if maybe earlier on it was a, there was a better correlation between the IGP dogs and the working dogs in the police or military. But the, the more I think about that, the less I think. I think the overlap may have been even smaller before. Maybe there's a difference as well in terms of, you know, I think there's a big emphasis on like ring sports and IGP. I don't know enough about KMPV, but I would have thought it was the same with KMPV actually. It's more about the biting versus the actual scent, the sensing ability. So there are two different, uh, what you call it, branches of KMPV. Uh, but I think it's similar in most other sports. So you have the biting branch and then the search and rescue branch. And they they do different things. Oh, I actually didn't know that. So you're, so when you're going into your selection, you're actually selecting from the search and rescue <clears throat> kind of side of KMPV. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> there is that branch as well. I, I have had dogs from that as well. And my personal dog is from that branch uh, so there are very good dogs there but they are typically not the, the most suitable for the biting roles but um, yeah so there is no i just wondered if there was anything unique about kmpv which like makes it uniquely suited to, to selection no not that i know of you just really. prefer the dogs to their breeding maybe i i don't know maybe there is a different culture there maybe it's not the same emphasis on the way behavior looks if it looks snappy in the obedience for example or not so maybe that can be a, a difference that selects for dogs that have a lower arousal level because my experience so far has been that dogs from the IGP lines have a higher arousal level generally oh, really interesting to hear uh yeah about selection and differences in the sports and how suited they are and yeah it's just really interesting it is. and i really appreciate you doing the podcast anyway and is is there anything that uh or anywhere people can find you uh obviously i know you do a lot of webinars but you also do in-person courses right yes uh, we do it's typically on request by different units so we don't have many courses that are uh, open but there will be one or two during 
the next year. What we're working quite hard on right now is to make our uh, to fill our app with progression plans. And I have actually just today uh, submitted a new version to the app store for their reviewing uh, with the tracking progression that plan that I'm quite happy with. I think uh, gives a good representation of the way we train packing dogs. So if people are interested in seeing how we train, then that may be the uh, the easiest way. Yeah, that's a really good idea, actually. I'm I'm a member of the app as well, and I've been doing the indication one. And yes, very very highly recommended. It. It's great. So, and also you actually have an obedience kind of like more of a, a like a, an obedience kind of one as well, right? Which may be a, more applicable to to some people that maybe don't, don't want to do detection, but just want to have like a like a reasonably well trained dog. I would imagine. Yes, actually, right now I'm working with the healing or the transport plan because that's one of these things where you need to go very slow when you increase the level of arousal. So if a dog can heal for 200 meters in a green grass field, then you don't have to train that more. Then you need to bring on more arousal. So start running going to doors or where the dog expects to do detection or bite work and then shouting people and other things that makes the dog's arousal go up but we're still reinforcing the same behaviors i think you have i and this is from memory so i hope i haven't got this wrong but also when you sign up for the app there is a there's like one free course isn't there like there's one that's wasn't there one that was like a taster? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is one of the basic ones to have the dog going in and out of the crate in an orderly fashion. Because whether you want it or not, through Premax principle, that is likely to be reinforced thousands of times. So if we just invest one or two days in teaching the dog how we want it to go in and out of the crate or the car, I find that being a good investment in time. Well, thanks, Jens. It's, it's been great to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. Hey, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jens Frank. Really cool to get the opportunity to talk to him as uh, someone that I really massively respect. And before you go, I guess today I just have one reminder for you. One thing that you can do that can help, can help me out. And I see a lot of you doing it and I, I really appreciate it. I'm putting out so many episodes at the moment and what I would really like is for people to discover the podcast more and it's quite hard to do that with a podcast it's not the kind of thing that is easily you know shared on Facebook or anything like that but actually one thing that you can do is like just take a screenshot on your phone of this podcast and share it on Instagram share it, share that on Facebook or just tell someone about the podcast that really helps us to continue to grow the podcast and I I would massively appreciate that especially because it actually costs a surprising amount of money when you're posting as many podcasts as i am now so it will be good to recuperate recuperate some of those costs for sure but um i love doing it so it's it it doesn't matter too much to me but uh but i would appreciate that if you do get a moment to do it thanks so much for listening and i'll see you on the next podcast